would you all, um, would you all, if you have them, open your Bibles to Romans 1. Um, you can use your phone. I mean, actually, most of what we will have today will be projected behind me. Uh, we're going to uh, focus today on Romans 1, 18 through 22. Um, but the highlight but to, to highlight the flow of this text, which will be in for several weeks, the, the larger section will be in for several weeks. I'm going to read the whole remaining chapter uh, that we haven't covered yet in Romans. So we're going to read 118 through 32, and we'll be focusing on the first part of that, inclusive of just about 22, though we'll touch on a couple other verses. Long story short, we're going to read a big passage and I'm going to focus on a smaller segment of that today. Um, let, me, let me just say, especially we have so many guests today and uh, so many of our own folks are missing. Um, we've been in Romans now for uh, several weeks and we've been hanging out in Romans 1, 16 and 17, which proclaims the gospel of God's grace to us. And we're about to jump into much, much harder news, much more difficult news. Um, I, I don't know if it was quite this text or, or just the melu of my own um, temperament, but I had to like use my Pastor John Piper app, the Ask Pastor John app I have, and do a search on no condemnation this morning <laughs> as I drove in because this text, I, I think at least in part perhaps because this text is so heavy. And so b before we read this text and pray, I just would like to remind all of you, and hopefully we'll, we'll come back to this many times, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus has taken our condemnation and the the enmity that we'll see reflected in this text between God and man is absolutely, absolutely jarring. And the more we see it, the more we contemplate it, the more jarring it is. It's very hard for us, even as believers, to grasp the reality of our predicament. And Paul just takes the gloves off here. And, and I, I just want to immerse you and remind you before we do that, as I said, I wanted to do a couple weeks ago when we talked about the Titanic and getting in the rescue ship before we look at the Titanic wreckage. Remember the gospel this morning that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that everything God is saying in these very difficult passages, he is saying so that people's hearts would be open and ready for his mercy. That he is on a mission through the apostle Paul and to us this morning, a mission of mercy uh, to help us who know him, to cherish him and treasure his gospel more and to help us be ready to be ambassadors for the gospel that we can often assume um, might feel very irrelevant out there to people, but it's not, it's not. So um, we're gonna read this and I'm gonna pray and ask you guys to pray with me for grace this morning. I'm gonna read Romans 1 verses 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they knew, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. These are the words of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, more than I understand, Lord. Uh, you see even what I'm aware of, how I've battled this week with my own sins. And, and Lord, I come to your text not only um, morally deficient, but I come, Lord, you know, intellectually, spiritually weak to be able to apprehend, much less communicate these incredible foundational truths. And so, Lord, as we've been singing and praying this morning, Lord, we ask again. Lord, just like Holly said, Lord, we, we don't want to just come and, and, and just be here and sit here. We, we want more. We want you. And, and Lord, we need a special grace today to be able to receive these sobering words And somehow, by your Holy Spirit, see the truth in them. Lord, these words are so hard, and they're so hard to see. 
But Lord, you are able to give us grace to see these words and you're able to even help us to receive them, Lord, as a fatherly care from you. So Lord, I I beg for mercy because I feel especially inadequate. Um, So I, I just beg as your child in the name of Jesus, as one for whom there is no condemnation, I come to your throne of grace and mercy and I bring my brothers and sisters and all those in this room I bring with me uh, in the attitude of my mind and I ask for the grace and mercy needed for this time of need. So have mercy on us. Cover us with the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness we need afresh today and husband your bride this morning, please. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for praying with me. Boy, what a, what a text for visitors today. <laughs> we didn't plan on this exactly. But we, we love the word of God and we want to embrace all of it. And so this is where we happen to be today as you guys come on this holiday weekend. Uh, as I said before, we've been in Romans 1 for many weeks. And what we have been really nourishing ourselves in before we came to this really rough text is the truth that God, as he says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, just before he launches into what we, we read today, that God has given mankind a gospel, a good news, a saving message in which he offers mankind a righteousness that's not our own. He offers mankind a righteous standing before him, an eternal righteousness in his holy courtroom that never fades, that's never taken away. He offers that to mankind as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. This righteous standing before him covers us completely if we are in Jesus Christ and it never leaves and it ushers in every other good thing that God desires to give mankind. That's the good news of verse 16 and 17. And now starting here in verse 18, God is explaining through his apostle why we need the gospel to give us this righteousness, to give us a a righteousness from God that we cannot earn or create ourselves. And he's telling us this because he wants us to know and cherish and to share the gift of the gospel. He wants it to be as relevant to us as it possibly can. He's not telling us these things to condemn us or to make us hopeless. He's telling us these things because we cannot value the grace and mercy of God as we should if we don't understand our need for it. And so at the very beginning of this letter, starting in 18, this apostle is explaining why we so desperately need this righteousness from God as a gift pronounced over our lives. So we're going to walk through uh, several of these verses and then talk a little bit about what we might take from it today. Starting in verse 18, Paul says, the reason why we need the gospel, the reason why we need the righteousness in Christ that we cannot earn or create for ourselves is because, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the big headline of this entire section, the rest of chapter one. 
We need the gospel. We need a savior. We need a righteousness we don't have and can't make for ourselves because God's wrath against our righteousness, against our unrighteousness is being manifest. It's being made known because we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God's wrath is revealed. The word for wrath is the Greek word orge. And uh, Greek scholar Bill Mounts tells us what we kind of already intuitively know. Wrath is a word for anger, which is passionate and which is vehement. So God is angry with a passionate and vehement anger with mankind apart from Christ. But as we have said before, leading up to this passage, we must not suppose that God's wrath is anything like our own proclivity towards unjust, out of control, rage, anger. That's not where God is. God's wrath is just. It is completely in control. It is completely righteous. And Jerry, Bridge, Jerry Bridges defines God's wrath this way. Can we go forward? Um, next slide, please. Another one, please. Is that Josh back there? Hi, Josh. This is Jerry Bridges' helpful definition of God's wrath. This is the way that he explains it, which I think is is certainly fair. God's wrath arises from his intense, settled hatred of all sin and is the tangible expression of his inflexible determination to punish it. God's wrath arises from his intense, settled hatred of all sin and is the tangible expression of his inflexible determination to punish it. We might say God's wrath is his justice in action, rendering to everyone his just due, which because of our sin, his wrath is always judgment. God is holy and he must punish sin and catalyzing that punishment is his wrath, his righteous and just anger at sin. Now, Paul, in explaining that God's wrath is revealed in verse 18, he doesn't simply mean that God is telling us that he has wrath. What he means is that that God is expressing his wrath in ways that are no longer hidden from our eyes if we have eyes to see. He is making his wrath known. He is making it experienced real in our lives, in the lives of mankind now. And yes, in chapter two, Paul will talk about what we're more used to hearing when we think about God's justice or judgment. We're used to thinking of the the final judgment. We're used to thinking of the last day when Christ will judge the world fully and finally. And that is coming. That day is coming. He talks about it in chapter two and in other parts of the book, he'll imply it. Chapter five through eight, Paul will talk of other aspects of God's wrath in our own death, spiritually and physically. So, but, but what we're going to see here is that Paul is talking about something different than the last day of judgment. And he's talking in chapter one about something different than our own death spiritually or physically, physically especially. Paul is arguing that in our present human experience across the world, we see wrath being expressed in our own interpersonal depravity. We see God's wrath being expressed in our own moral collapse, individually and societally. And I I, want to concentrate on this question of why. Exactly why is God angry at humankind? And here is where the Holy Spirit tells us something we would never be able to see unless he showed it to us. 
Here's what I mean. If, if I asked you guys or myself before I studied this text, why is God angry at humanity? We might be inclined to point to racism or corporate greed or marital infidelity in our culture, or child abuse, or government oppression, or sex trafficking, or our own sexual immorality, or unjust wars, or our own laziness and slothfulness and addiction to various things. And in some manner, we would be quite right that that God is displeased and angry because of those things and that we're responsible for all those things. And that God is angry. We'd be right. But Paul is not starting with that. That's not our primary fundamental first problem. Paul is going to tell us that those horrible sins like racism and corporate greed and marital infidelity, child abuse, etc., etc., that our sins against one another, whether individually or in society, are not so much the cause of his wrath as the result of, of it as it is this is really really important for us to grasp in this chapter because when God fixes this through Christ it's going to eventually fix everything else Paul is going to tell us that our sins against one another are actually the result of a greater and more foundational sin in us Paul is going to tell us that our sins against one another, which he explains, he goes through that that litany of lists at the back end of the chapter we read today, are actually the result of a greater and more foundational sin. We are still responsible for our sins against one another in, in our society and systematically and corporately and individually and personally. But God is explaining that those sins are the effects of his wrath against us for something more fundamental, something greater, something deeper, something much worse. So what is that something else? And verse 18 in the following tells us what that something else is. All ungodliness is what God is angry about. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God is angry apart from Christ, at our ungodliness, our lack of reverence for him. And the way that we, in unrighteousness, not out of ignorance or accidentally, we suppress the truth about him. So there is truth about God that we are suppressing or holding down and we're doing it unrighteously. That is, we're not doing it accidentally or innocently. Verse 19 tells us what this is. It begins to unpack what this truth that we're suppressing, that we're holding down is. It says in 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So the truth that mankind suppresses on purpose is about God. And verse 20, he explains more. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now let let me take a second to identify this they when he says they in this chapter. 
he's talking about all people on some level. And he's talking about all people without Christ. And he's not talking, he's not acting as if God doesn't save and jump in to cultures and communities and, and, and do great, wonderful, and good things for people and changes them and saves them and redeems them. He's going to get to that, but that's not what he's talking about right here. He's talking about the general reality of mankind. He's, not, he's also not saying that everyone is as bad as everyone can be. He'll, he'll qualify these things. But he's giving us a picture of the general reality of mankind. This is, in other words, this is the way it goes with the world. This is the way it goes with mankind generally and comprehensively. And in some measure, for all people, apart from God's grace and his changing, his Holy Spirit's regenerating, changing power. And here's what he says. He says, we suppress this truth about God, that his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, I'm in verse 20, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul is asserting that we know intuitively that what exists all around us in creation means there must be a creator. We, we intuitively know this. That's his assertion. And we suppress it. That we intuitively know nothing comes from nothing. And we, we do know this about other things besides God, besides deity, besides creation. For instance, none of you would walk into a room that you've never seen before in a house and see it fully furnished with, with antiques, beautiful, expensive antiques, and, and see it adorned with beautiful paintings and, and see a raging fireplace neatly set up and blazing safely under the chimney and look down and see lush oriental carpets and look over here to your right and see a beautiful Steinway grand piano and then look over here in front of you and see this beautiful bay window ornamented, carved out with, with beautiful little lattices and, up, and see the view upon the ocean. None of you would look around that room and say, look what came into existence all by itself. This is amazing. No, no, you would all ask, this is great. Who put this together? This is beautiful. Who did this? And Paul says that deep inside our hearts, we see the sun, we see the moon, we see the sky, we see the mountains, we see the clouds, we see the trees, we see the rivers, we see the beauty and the order of creation, we see the rationality in God's design, we see the majesty of the human eye. And in all our thinking and feeling and doing, and, and we see the, the incredible design of nature in horses and in butterflies and in lions and in great blue whales, and we're touched by the majesty and order and logic and symmetry of nature, and we know, we know deep down that reality itself, existence itself, the fact that, that right now for each of you sitting here, you know there is a now. There is a present reality you didn't create in this room that you have conscious thoughts that you, you didn't 
create that power for you to, to have conscious thoughts, to be a being, to be a very existing person is a miracle that you know that the fact that there was a yesterday and there's a now and there's a tomorrow, that time exists, that you deep down inside, Paul's asserting that all people know that this is a miracle of eternal power, that this is a miracle, that we know that this did not come from nothing, that it couldn't, that we know that it did not come from us, that we know that we're not sourced in ourselves, that we're dependent every moment on this eternal power and divine nature. Paul is asserting that deep down, we know this and that mankind suppresses this. And there's a dynamic reality to this. We, we do it to such a degree that it can become inaccessible to us. We can stuff it down so deep that we can deceive ourselves with a great hardness and come to believe that we really don't know this, that we really don't see this. This is why the Holy Spirit is so necessary when we read a chapter like this. Because Paul is telling blind people about things they're blind to. And for us as believers who have been given sight, our sight is so imperfect still. And so he's telling people with very poor eyesight what's right in front of them. It's very hard to see. But this is what he is asserting. One theologian sums it up this way, very simply. So here is the truth that we suppress apart from God's grace in our lives. So here is the truth that we suppress apart from God's grace in our lives. There is a God. He is the creator of all things. And so he's not a God, but the God. He is powerful, more powerful than all else because he made all else. He is eternal because there was nothing outside of him that could bring him into being. We do not supply him. He supplies us. There is a God. He is the creator of all things and he is all powerful. That's what Paul says that we know. And he goes on to speak of our tragic response which tells us more about what we know and which also engenders God's anger. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So they, they, they knew about God. They knew these things about God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So this brings in another dimension to what we suppress because these words, think about these words, honor, give thanks. These words are moral words. These are things that we should, we ought to give to God. So the implication here is that God created us moral beings. That we, all of us have, even though it's broken, some sense that there is a morality to the universe. There is a right and a wrong. And, and again, if you, if you don't believe me, though, you probably do believe me. But if you don't believe me, I, I offer you this experiment. Go up to anyone at a coffee shop. Go to Frederick Coffee Company and see if you can find an atheist who doesn't believe in God or an agnostic or, or maybe a Buddhist or a Baptist. Just find any of them and just go up to them and just slap them across the face. You're drinking their coffee. Just go up and give them a slap. It just doesn't have to be 
the worst, but just do it. And here's what will happen. You will almost certainly see in their eyes a look of shock. And what they will be thinking will be some variation on, besides you are a crazy person, I must flee right away. They'll be thinking some variation on on this. Why did you do that to me? I did nothing to deserve that from you. That was wrong. They'll, they'll be thinking, along with calling the police or running, they'll be thinking some variation on that. Why did you do that to me? I did nothing to you to deserve that. That was wrong. Atheist, agnostic, Buddhist, Baptist, they're all going to think some variation on that. My point is, we were created with moral capacity because our creator is moral. We were created, all of us, all cultures, all societies have moral capacities because we were created by a moral creator. People who say there is no such thing as good and evil are very angry at the unjust ways that religious people foist good and evil concepts on the rest of society. That's very unfair. It's very evil. Right? Do you get it? Do you get it? It doesn't work for anybody to say there's no such thing as good and evil. Everyone, it is inescapable. It's a room we are all locked into. Because the universe is moral, because it was created by a moral being. God is a God of righteousness, and he created our first parents righteous. And even though we, fallen with them, are broken in that capacity, we retain a semblance of it. And this moral capacity This moral capacity to believe in a right and a wrong, it is not turned off when we recognize that there is an eternal power and a divine nature behind the universe. So there's more going on in the suppressing. No, what Paul is saying is that we understand morally that this being of eternal power and divine nature is worthy of honor, that he should be honored, and that he is worthy of thanksgiving. Commensurate according to his greatness. We understand that the one who made and sustains all things is morally due. He is morally owed honor. And, and in fact, he's due honor above all things. He is due living lives of gratitude to him above all things because he gives us all things and sustains for us all things that he sustains. There is no one, no being in the universe that is more worthy of our honor and our life of gratitude and our giving thanks to and glorifying than this being But instead of honoring him and living lives of thanksgiving, instead of humbly recognizing every moment we are nothing without him, every second we are completely dependent on him sustaining us, and that as creator he has the rightful authority to explain to us what is good and what is not good, instead of that, as a race, we have suppressed that truth to varying degrees over and over and over again from Adam and Eve. And I won't go through that narrative, but that's exactly what happens. When tempted with the idea without any evidence or proof that God is not good. And when tempted 
to assign themselves the role of God over their own lives, they buy it, hook, line, and sinker. And every successive generation, Paul says, does the same things that our first parents did. And apart from God's grace, we would all continue doing that. Paul says in verse 28 that we do not see fit to acknowledge God. And so we take it upon ourselves the right to, as Adam and Eve did, define for themselves what is right and what is wrong. And we embrace for ourselves the idea of self-rule and self-glory instead of God-rule and God-glory. And this is what we do. Generation, generation, generation. There is a wonderful story that I told a few years ago, some of you guys might remember, about a brilliant astrophysicist named Alan Sandage. Alan Sandage is, was widely regarded as the greatest astronomer, someone who sees the stars and planets and studies the cosmos, of the 20th century. And this world-famous Jewish man, brilliant scientist, was an agnostic. He did not believe in God. He left it as a question that's out there was irrelevant to him. One day though, Sandage was speaking at a conference for academics on the origin of the universe, life, and the origin of consciousness. And he, that day, shocked his accomplished scientific audience. He did not bring them some new finding or some new discovery on the origins of life or the reality of human consciousness. No, he brought them a confession. He brought them a confession. This brilliant physicist said that the scientific, the scientific evidence for a divine creator was becoming so increasingly overwhelming and compelling to him that he was moving away from agnosticism towards belief through his research in a divine creator. This was not because of religious truths. This was because of the reality of, of the incredible precision of the universe that would allow life to exist. And he realized that math didn't have enough numbers to account for a random occurrence of life. It just was, in his estimations, impossible that this just happened. And so he said, I am moving away from agnosticism and I am coming to believe that this universe and our world was designed. The evidence is too compelling for me anymore. And as he realized this, he realized something else. He did not like his new belief. He did not like it. And he realized he was trying again and again to suppress it. In the midst of this desire, though, to suppress this growing conviction, he said to himself, wait a minute, <laughs> I have prided myself my whole life on my scientific objectivity. And now that the evidence is pointing me towards the God hypothesis, what is it in me that doesn't want it to be true? Sandage admitted what Paul would say to all people, including the scientists around us and including you and I, apart from God's grace, we don't want it to be true. Apart from God's grace, we want the freedom to rule ourselves, to define ourselves. 
Albert Einstein grew up in a functionally atheistic scientific culture. And in the early 20s, his research began to lead him to a very uncomfortable conclusion that the universe had a beginning. We're used to that now in theories like the Big Bang. But for a long time in the 1800s, the, the, the scientific community accepted de facto the, the idea that the universe was eternal. It always existed. And if something's always existed, it doesn't need a creator, right? And so Einstein kept coming up with these calculations as he looked at physics. This doesn't work. Like the universe had to have a beginning. And this conclusion so shook him that he, this is true, he actually changed his equations and invented a, what he called a mathematical constant, an artificial truth that he had to put in his equations so that he could make the universe in his equations always exist and never need creating. And then ultimately other discoveries from other friends convinced him that he had to give up this falsehood. Time and space and matter were not eternal. They were not something brought them into existence. I could go down the list of other world-renowned brilliant scientists who'd, who would rather postulate with no scientific proof speculations that we might want to laugh at, speculations that life, we're not going to believe in God, so life must have been created by aliens. And there are great scientists who believe these things. I mean, brilliant people. It must have been created by aliens. Never mind that who the question is kicked down the road. Who created the aliens? Or uh, other concepts that were part of an infinite number of multiverses. This is new in the last 20 years, and now we see it in the movies. So we can have several Batmans. So we can get Michael Keaton and Ben Affleck, and maybe even Christian Bale. He'll never join that multiverse. But my point is, multiverses, by the way, that I, from what I've read, there, there, this is a theory. There's, there's no scientific evidence for this, but for, from what I've read. But, but never mind the fact that it begs the question, who created the physical laws that make even one universe possible? Nevertheless, an infinite number. The can is just kicked down the road again. Or, you know, we, we've all grown up in a culture that accepts at face value that we're here through billions of years of unguided, godless evolution. We, we, you know, academically, that's just a given. You, you will be mocked in the classroom if you don't accede to this. And, you know, if, if you read the literature, you might believe this is changing. You might see that there are some challenges here. But, but let's just for a second give that let's accede to that. It tells us absolutely nothing about how matter or time or life came into being. So why is it so hard for our elite established culture? And I'm not picking on them. This goes through everybody. <laughs> like, but, but I'm just taking the scientists who, who work on these questions to bring them to you. All these speculations avoiding the idea of a designer, getting us away as far as we can from the idea of a creator. Why? Well, I believe Paul would say they are just functioning in our hearts as emotional substitutes that help us suppress God. They help us deny God. 
And what's blatantly clear is they don't provide any answers, any real answers to the question. But they're emotionally comforting because we get to kick that can way down the road. And if to us that can smells and it's ugly and we don't want it, kicking it down the road, if that's the best we can do, is very attractive. In Revelation 4.11, there is a magnificent scene in heaven. In this scene, God is seated on his throne and he's being worshiped by beings that are dazzling and otherworldly in their descriptions. And they're called the 24 elders. And they're in God's presence and they're in awe and they're in reverence and they're, they're, they have crowns and they're casting down their crowns before him and they're proclaiming this. I think we have the slide of this. It's a very short little passage. It says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Think about that. Slow down and think about that. Read that again. And think about the logic. It's very simple and intuitive logic. They're saying what Paul is saying. If there is a creator of all things and by whose will all things were created and by whose will all things exist, then such a being deserves all glory and honor and power. In other words, if he is creator and sustainer, then it is his will that is to be honored and his might that should be glorified. He knows best by virtue of creating me. He has the right to define reality because it's his reality that was created, not mine. He has the right to rule if he desires to rule, not me. We don't, though, want to be ruled. We, we want to rule. We do not want to be creatures. We want to be creator. Th- this, again, is the story of our first parents. And it's the story of Sandage and Einstein and, and, and us but for the grace of God. We want to be our own, and so we repress the truth about the true God. This is what Paul is asserting. And and I I think I see this every day in my life in some way or or form. It's reflected in my sin. Here's what I mean. All my coveting, like when I see somebody who has something I don't have and I get upset and angry about it, I am saying, God, I know what is best for me and not you. That's what my coveting is saying. All of my sinful anger at my kids or at my wife, it's really saying I deserve the ultimate honor in this situation, not you. I'm the one who's chiefly offended, not the king of righteousness and justice, me. All of my my worry, all of my daily obsessing, that is really hard for me to control. And God is very merciful and care, caring about my anger, my, my anxiety. But, but all of my worry and my obsessing 
Isn't it, for me, I just really believe it's saying, Lord, I must sort this out. I must be my own sufficiency and I can't rest by leaving it with you. You can't be trusted with this. All my lust, all my lust says, these creatures created in your image are to be used as I see fit. I can use them as I want. Not, not as you see fit. All my selfishness with my money, my fears that make me want to have more and more and more money, they're all saying, I must be my own provider, not you, God. Not you. And so, in these sins, I suppress the truth about God. And Paul says, I become a fool. I become a fool. I am so bent from the reality that's all around me that every second of my existence, I am sustained by a power that's almighty and divine and outside of me. I mean, you're all thinking people right now, unless you're sleeping or thinking about something else. You're, you're, you're hearing my words and thinking about these things. Can any of you tell me how in the world that is possible? That you are a being right now, you are a being that thinks and feels and decides and desires? Like, how is that possible? Is that not a breathtaking miracle to just exist right now? You are an invisible spirit inside a physical machine that by just thinking you can do this. I mean, I've said this before because it's just, it never runs out of gas. It's it's a crazy miracle. Existence is a miracle. Every second is an absolute miracle. How, where the heck am I? I I mean, I I know I'm seeing through these eyes, but if if you took this hemisphere of my brain out, Scientists knows I'd still, my soul would still be able to see how to use this hemisphere. If you took this hemisphere of my brain out, my, my spirit would still be able to use this hemisphere. If you took my heart out, you pretty much can take any organ out of my body at this point, just about, and, and I can still be here. Where do I exist, really? I mean, I am just trying to say that these kinds of ideas give me a little window into how bent my real reality is when I forget that everything is a shocking miracle, that my ability to step on this ground, I just never think, I don't presume on, oh, I can just walk on this floor. What's holding that floor together? The ground, the dirt, what's under that? Limestone, what's under that? We keep going down to the water table and then we get to molten lava and rock and then we get to China. (laughs) And then what's under that? Nothing, just something called gravity. I mean, it is crazy that we exist. It's not crazy, it's holy. It's holy, it's sacred. The thing that this text has done for me emotionally this week as I've been thinking about it is I I will admit by God's grace, by God's grace, I am not looking this week at trees and sky the same way as I did last week. I'm aware that it is a breathtaking miracle. And as I hear God through these chapters saying, I created these things. By his grace, something is awakened in me a little bit more and is able to say, amen. And that's a miracle. That's a miracle that I would be able to see that and believe that. So, apart from God's grace, Paul says, 
Our minds are futile in their thinking in verse 21. Our foolish hearts become dark as we suppress the truth about God. As we suppress the truth about God, Paul says, we don't just stay there. Our, we become dark. We become futile. And Paul puts it this way, so brilliantly sum, sum up, summed, summed up with such moral weight. He says in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Because we wanted to be our own, we want to rule ourselves, we exchange the truth about God for a lie. And we begin to worship and serve creation rather than the creator. When we suppress the truth about God, something must take his place. If we will not find our peace and our security in the almighty deity, we will have to find it somewhere else. <clears throat> and this, Paul says, is the heart of idolatry. We will worship something. We will adore something. We will put our hope or, or try with all our might to put our hope in something. And if it will not be our creator, it will have to be something from his creation. Something we can sink our teeth into that's easier than him in our conception and through which we can try to have life the way we want it. The idols in Paul's day were carved images. Apollo or Caesar. And we all know that for us, we, we take from different things in creation, more likely in the States. We depend and put our hope in, put our deepest heart into things like money or career, an idealized version of a better us, political leaders, Bourbon, sports, porn, the hope of marriage, many good things that God created for us to enjoy become substitutes for God. All of us who know him and walk with him battle with this daily in some measure. But this, the Apostle Paul says breaks God's heart and apart from the grace and the mercy in the gospel it not only breaks his heart it incites his just wrath brothers and sisters this is the heart of the sin of mankind it's not first and foremost what we do to each other it's what we do to him this is the engine room of human depravity and the cause of God's wrath. Apart from God's grace, we do not want to acknowledge God and live lives honoring him as we should. This is the reality of everyone without a true, saving, life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the truth that's in the heart of the most polite coworker that you know who rejects God, the kind neighbor who
who greets you across the street, who has no room to repent in Christ, the barista you get your coffee from, the cultural Bible Belt Christian who puts a fish decal on the back of his heart car and is full of bigotry and licentiousness and arrogance. This is the greatest problem they all have. This is the problem that's at the root of all other problems. It's not their sexual immorality or their bigotry or the way they treat their boss or their anger at their kids. Those are symptoms. They're lesser sins that point to the great sin that fuels them all. We suppress the truth about God because we want to be our own God and rule ourselves. And according to God's word, apart from Christ, that engenders his wrath. And next time, we're going to focus more closely on the effects of the wrath that I talked about in the beginning. But I, I want to end this morning, if I can, by God's grace, with hope. Remember why Paul is telling us this. Remember why God preserved this word and is telling us this. Because he wants us to know and cherish the great provision he has given to us to escape his wrath and find our way back to him. The first and greatest sin is forgivable. It is curable. As great as the sin of mankind is, his mercy is greater as powerful and corrupting that the sin of mankind is, his mercy and his grace is much more powerful and able to restore and redeem all of its effects. He has a perfect remedy for our willful suppression and the response of his wrath himself in the person of his son. Jesus Christ takes God's wrath from us by being punished for us. He takes God's wrath at our suppression of God's truth upon himself and he exhausts it. He drinks the cup dry and for those who put their faith in him and turn to him for forgiveness and mercy, there is no wrath left. There is none. There is none and yes, we will still struggle with sin. We'll still struggle to suppress God till the day we die. And there will be no wrath for us because Jesus has taken it for us. And that's what he wants to do for everyone. And that's what he calls for everyone to run to him for his mercy. He forgives us for this and he will keep forgiving us for this and he's restoring us from this. He, he is recovering us. He, he gives us imperfectly but truly, not just forgiveness, but truly a desire and a power to grow away from this suppression of him and to grow in a desire to know him and love him and give him honor and thanks that he deserves. This is the miracle of the gospel. And I trust by his grace, he has given it to you in this room. And if you don't have this, if you don't know if you have this, please talk to me. I would love to pray with you and talk with you about it. There's nothing more important 
than knowing this news and being reconciled to his son. So thank you for walking through this message with me today. I can't remember a harder message for me in my heart. I would much rather spend the whole time on his faithfulness and his dependability and his mercy, full stop. But, but may this look at this very dark picture make the, the light of Christ shine brighter for us. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for being with us this morning. I thank you for so many guests this morning, and I pray for those, um, our brothers and sisters away at different vacations, that you keep them safe and keep their minds and hearts on you. I pray that, Lord, you would make this truth um, benefit us in, in its ability to uh, cause us to humble ourselves, to cherish you, to treasure you as the almighty, all-powerful God you are, for you're restoring our ability to honor you and give you thanks. You're restoring our sight to be able to see you as you really are, the maker and sustainer of every moment of our lives, worthy of our trust and our love. Please fill us with your spirit today. And, and Lord, for any particularly who are really throttled with a sense of condemnation or struggling with that today, Lord, may you just, Lord, through your spirit, cry over them. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as they think about their loved ones who don't know you, may they hear you cry over their loved ones. I want all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is loving towards all his works and merciful towards all he has made. Lord, may, may that truth of your love of mercy protect them as they contemplate these difficult things. In Jesus' name, amen.